Hobart Hospital. And we have made Cornerstone our home and have enjoyed deep fellowship with members of this congregation. And we have valued your prayers as we have sought to obey God's call uh, to take the gospel of Christ our Lord to a frontier people group in Asia who have no church of their own and with a vision of them coming to know and worship God. And through this year, I have been travelling to churches around Tassie uh, to raise an army of prayer warriors for this vision, uh, preaching Sunday sermons regularly and, and raising this vision. And I want to thank the Cornerstone elders and, and moderator Kim Jacob for giving me the privilege of delivering some of what I've been preaching on here too. I pray that God would use today's sermon for his purpose and his glory. So let's pray. God, our Father, we confess that you are Lord. Everything that exists was made for you. There is no true God besides you. We pray that you will speak to our hearts so that we will know you, love you and worship you as King of Kings as you deserve. I ask that I would be a vessel for your gospel so that your word would ignite listeners' hearts with a new vision of your greatness, what you've created us for and what you've redeemed us for, to fulfil your plans for your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Have you ever wondered, what is the purpose of your life? What have you been put on this earth for? Who am I and why am I here on this earth? What have you spent all your time and energies pursuing in life or to be the outcome of your life? And what really bothers you or pains you if you can't see it being fulfilled in your life? I myself have been pondering these same questions throughout the past 38 years of my life so far. And throughout much of human history, many people have been dead by my age. And there's no more time to ponder what their life is for. Is it career? Is it making a name for yourself? Is it a certain relationship? Is it the Australian dream? Is it financial independence and home ownership? Or is it giving a large inheritance of property or a glorious empire to our children? We chase and chase life goals and then we die and sometimes punctuated in the meantime by a midlife crisis or perhaps an affair. And within generations, even for the famous, we fade from memory. What's it all for in the end? What matters and what purpose in life are you saved for? Is it different to what your non-Christian friends are living for, wanting, chasing? What do you want to attain with your life and serve with your life? Because whatever you serve, above all things, that is your true God. And the gods of the nations may seduce us, but they wind up leaving us empty and never satisfied enough. And not only do individual people strive for life goals that are the idols or gods of the nations, but we see nations fight each other, striving for power and wealth. Kingdoms rise and then fall. We see the Olympic Games currently. You know, this came out of the gods actually battling on Mount Olympus uh, in Greek mythology. And the nations are wrestling for, for preeminence and for victory. 
Um, but who does that mountain belong to in the end? Who will win? And the world empires are all battling. Um, but what is the point of world history and, and who will have victory in the end? Well, what is the end for which the world was made and how will it happen? Well, Romans 1 says there is a point to it all. There is an end to all the meaningless mess. And we have to understand the context of a Bible passage to understand its meaning. The context of the world enslaved to global death by Satan's lie. A world in which COVID reigns. What is wrong with the world? And what is the solution? The mess, the greatest evil and tragedy in the whole world is that its creator, God who created the galaxies and every part of the earth is dishonoured and disobeyed. A world ruled by sin and death following Satan's deception. And it's a mess. The world war of our time, the global pandemic of COVID-19 and every other evil known in the world happened because of the sin and the fall of humankind. God had said, in that day you will surely die, not fulfilled merely by spiritual death, but a comprehensive dying in all aspects of life that the world has been set under. But not forever. There is good news. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul shows us the good news of the long-awaited Christ and his worldwide kingdom. So that all nations will see his majesty. The history of the world that we live in is ultimately about God redeeming the world he made and giving to his son a glorious inheritance. This inheritance is a worldwide kingdom over all nations. And this kingdom of Christ, make no mistake, is the very purpose of our lives. It is why we were created and why we are saved. And the good news of scripture replaces all of our idols with God's grand plan. So turn with me to Romans 1 and we'll see three points. Christ's identity, Christ's purpose, and lastly, our identity and purpose. And of course, all these things are linked. Firstly, Christ's gospel identity, king of all nations. Reading from verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And in verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. Gospel means news, an announcement. And so what is the gospel news according to the Apostle Paul in this landmark letter to the Romans? The gospel is no less than the announcement of Jesus being the Christ. And Paul summarises this in verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. You'll see that in verse 1 he says, set apart for the gospel of God, and then he has a preamble about the gospel, the gospel he promised, blah, 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 blah. And then colon, resurrection from the dead, colon, Jesus Christ our Lord. So his summary of the gospel is that Jesus is Christ our Lord. Jesus is the Christ. And as verse 2 says, as is promised in the scriptures. So we may come with various ideas about what the gospel is, but we cannot really understand what the gospel is without understanding who the Christ was promised to be. 
And there is the story. The world throughout history plunged into darkness and death because of the sin and disobedience of Adam's humankind. Adam's kind. And the world was subjected to futility, hardship. As, as Romans 8 puts it, the curses of the fall were not just thorns. For men who are farmers and mothers' pain of squeezing babies through the birth canal. You know those curses of the fall. But all of human work has been made difficult. And all of parenting carries struggle. The whole experience of living in this world has been messed up. Those who know of Narnia, the, the series, know of the, the, the never-ending winter, waiting for the lion who conquers. The world has awaited a saviour, the Christ, humankind's only hope, the one who says, Behold, I make everything new. And there is no other name by which humankind can be saved from the utter mess of the whole world. So who is the Christ? Christ means actually anointed one. So what does scripture say the anointed one is about? Christ is our English version for the Greek word Christus. In Psalm 2, there is a Christ, the one anointed to be king of the nations. And this Christ is proclaimed the son of God. And God gives his son a huge inheritance, not just a patch of land, but all of it and all its contents, all the nations of the earth, the whole world God created to be given to his son whom he loves. I won't read out all of Psalm 2 here, but you can read that yourself. Jesus announces that he is this promised Christ. In Luke 4, when he reads the scroll of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, that is, from slavery to sin. So Jesus himself is, is totally self-aware that he is this anointed one. He is this anointed king who frees slaves of sin in all the nations. And in Romans 1 verse 3, he is a descendant of David. What's the significance of being in the line of David? Not just some family line because Jesus had to come into this world through some family or through the nation of Israel. Jesus himself said that all the scriptures speak of Christ in pictures and promises of Christ. This is biblical typology or, promise, uh, or promise and fulfilment. Psalm 89 says, I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy, ultimately Satan, and all who follows Satan lies rather than God, will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my saviour. And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. King David established a glorious kingdom of God's people over nations all around, so that they, all these nations, paid tribute to Israel. 
and he set up a major empire stretching from the border of Egypt to the lowlands of Mesopotamia. And then Israel gets ex exiled under idolatrous foreign rule, including the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and, wait for it, the Romans, the very people to whom this letter is addressed. But the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, say that the Christ would recover the kingdom of God over all nations. In verse 4, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection. How do we know that the resurrection makes him the Son of God? I used to think, well, only God, only someone divine could surely rise from the dead, sort of as a sort of a self-evident truth. That's actually not what the Bible is trying to say. It's because scripture actually fulfills, uh, Jesus fulfills scripture about the resurrected Christ, the Son of God. And the Apostle Peter preaches in Acts 2 and the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 and other places throughout Acts about this Christ. In Acts 13, Paul preaches the gospel. And now we proclaim to you the good news, what God promised our fathers he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And in fact, God raised him from the dead, never to see decay. As he has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. That's from Isaiah 55. And, and Paul goes on to say, So also he says in another psalm, Psalm 16, You will not let your Holy One see decay. So this is fulfilment of what God himself has said about the Christ rising from the dead, the Son of God. And Paul quotes Isaiah 55 regarding the promises to David. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. See how I used him to display my power among the peoples. I made him a leader amongst the nations. You also, speaking to this Christ, you also will command nations you do not know, and peoples unknown to you will come running to obey. And Paul goes on in Acts 13, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So you see, Psalm 16 gives, and the resurrection gives Jesus the credentials, showing him to be the Son of God. The resurrection is the sign of freedom from the power of death, such, such that COVID-19 has lost its sting and all the nations of the world have hope. Because COVID is not Lord, Satan and sin and death is not Lord. But for all the nations of the world, Jesus is Lord. And we sing, all will see how great is our God. This is big news. So let's go on to see point two, Christ's gospel purpose. In Romans 1 verse 5, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Here, Paul reveals the purpose of Christ's gospel, Christ's mission, to call all the Gentiles to obedience for his name's sake. This may shock us for a couple of reasons. Firstly, being called to obedience will shock us if we have been told the gospel is the news that we don't need to obey, 
because it's about justification by faith. But let's see what Scripture says here, and let's think about it. Does it make sense that Jesus would have come so that we might be excused for a life of self-serving and disobedience to God? God's word tells us that that is not his purpose at all. His mission is to restore the created world away from sin, away from disobedience to obedience. And we must not mistake the gospel of the Bible being about excusing sin with life insurance against hell so that people can live for themselves, their own kingdoms and their own self-importance with no fear of accountability. Isn't that a human-centred, self-serving caricature of the gospel? <clears throat> and totally against God's mission to create a holy people who live totally for his kingdom. Another shock may be, why is all the Gentiles so strongly featured in this gospel? What is essential and core to the gospel? We may see that in Romans 1, there was no mention of Jesus' sacrificial death in this summary of the gospel. But when Paul says Jesus is the promised Christ, this talks about that and more. Because in scripture, such as Isaiah 53, the Christ must be killed like a lamb because of human sin. And this lamb is pictured in Revelations 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, and language and people and nation. Christ bought me with his blood, but not just me as one person. That's too small a view of what the gospel. The Bible tells us Christ purchased people from every tribe and language. And Romans 1 verse 5 says, all the Gentiles. The original language says, pasin to ethnesin, from which we get the word ethnic. Not just all nations as countries of geopolitical borders, but all ethnic peoples or races. So at, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, a name known and worshipped across every language. Isaiah 45 says, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, he formed the earth and fashioned it, he established it, he did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Come, gather together, and draw near, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry idols of wood and pray to a God that cannot save. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no God but me, a righteous God and Saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow before me, every tongue will swear allegiance. You might, you might be familiar with those words because Paul, um, and Romans as well, but Paul also echoes this in Philippians 2, um, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he says that Jesus fulfills Isaiah the prophet there. Um, the word obedience in verse 5 of Romans 1, an English translation for the original language of this letter, the Greek word hupakoen, built on the word akuo, from which we get acoustic, 
It's submission to hearing the word of God. He spoke and it was done. Let there be light in the original creation of the world. And it was done. Adam, the head of the original creation, was disobedient and subjected to death. But this new man, Christ, rising from the dead, ushers in a new creation, a new humankind. This gospel is not just about salvation of one tribe to be a kingdom, but about all races of Adam's kind brought to obedience. And God wants us to hear the Christ of scripture rather than the Christ of humanistic, individualistic and self-centered culture is not a savior of individuals for the sake of themselves. That would be a narrow and constricted distortion of the gospel. The gospel is far bigger than salvation for individuals or for our tribe. The scriptures in fact already showed the Jews as God's chosen and rescued people in the Old Testament. The gospel, on the other hand, is called a mystery in Romans 16, Ephesians, Colossians. It's a mystery not revealed in previous generations. The stunning news of the gospel is that God is not a tribal God for one nation, Israel, after all, but in fact drawing all the Gentiles of the world to God. Do you see this gospel news? We must understand who the Christ of the Bible is. The Christ is God's appointed man to write the whole world that's God gone wrong. For a new kingdom and ultimately a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus is actually Lord and head of a new human race with all races descended from Adam represented. The gospel is not about just saving a lot of individuals and optionally as many individuals as possible because human people are themselves worthy. It's about salvation for all tribes into one whole body of Christ, consisting of people from all nations, and no part is unnecessary. The gospel is not about gathering in, in, in just more and more individuals because they're worthy, but representatives from each nation and all the peoples that he's already set in his plan to be in Christ. And so we have no, only partly completed the mission Christ gave to his followers. The kingdom of God is incomplete. Salvation for God's people from all tribes is not potential or dependent on human decision, but it's a certainty. And in the picture of people from all nations around God's throne, the so far unreached people will be there. Data we have shows us that 42.5% of the world are in unreached people groups. And 30%, almost 30%, are frontier people groups. That means less than 0.1% Christian. Staggering. And yet less than 1% of missionaries and resources goes to frontier peoples. 99% of missionaries go to more reached. But how much of the world rightly belongs to God? Psalm 95 says the Lord is the king above all gods. All the gods of the nations, unworthy gods, will bow. And the reason for worship is given. God made the earth. Even the high and mighty mountains belong to him. So he's worthy of his creature's worship. And yet he is disobeyed in many places still. And the mountains are still filled with idol worship. 
I was going to wear an orange scarf, but I forgot to put it on. Um, it was a welcome gift from the tea people, a frontier people group that we visited a few years ago. I use the code name for them for security reasons. There are people who would be very unhappy about people being sent to them and would try and do bad things to us if they knew. But they are real people out there. And we met people like Nima, gripped by sin and death, by the death of her husband, and then a machinery accident that injured her son, um, upon which his wife left him and abandoned the grandkids. And standing there with us, she cried, gripped by sin and death with no hope. Her only hope, a highly demonic form of Buddhism, in which people invite demon possession. Mountain journeys in which they bow flat on the ground every few steps for thousands of miles to appease their gods. They need Jesus. It pains me to know that they are cut off from knowing, loving and worshipping God. Indeed, they are defying our Lord. But we will see them in the kingdom of God. The tea people will be there amongst God's kingdom people. Uh, we, we heard um, at the beginning of the service, Psalm 87. I will count Rahab, a, a word, Old Testament word for Egypt, and Babylon amongst those who know me, and also Philistia and Tyre, and even distant Ethiopia. They have all become citizens of Jerusalem. Regarding Jerusalem, it will be said, everyone enjoys the rights of citizenship there. In, in some versions, it's, and some of them will be given the birthright. They'll be said to have been born in Jerusalem. When the Lord registers the nations, he will say they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. God will register his kingdom people. Anyone in teaching? There's going to be a giant roll call. Just picture that. This one from Egypt and a major world empire, later eclipsed by the Babylonian Empire and later the Roman Empire. This one from Egypt is granted birthright, the citizenship of Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom of God. This one was from Babylon, counted as a Jerusalem child. This one from the Philistines. This one from Ethiopia, from Rome, from Australia, from amongst the tea people. Now people from all these nations and tribes are seen as a child of Jerusalem. Can you picture this? They belong to him. And saving them is the fulfilment of prophecy and all the scriptures. It's written in something more eternal than stone. When trekking to Mount Everest Base Camp over a decade ago now, I realised something when I looked at the shrines and the flags to other gods there. I've seen such mountains and their people, and I can tell you, that they would not hear of the name of Jesus, let alone bow their knee to him as saviour and lord if no one goes to them. Imagine if you were the tea people. They are a frontier people group beyond the current frontiers of the kingdom of God. And no Christian witness can spread the gospel in their language. Imagine your own tribe and family still knew nothing of Jesus Christ. And you've served worthless gods. The tea people need to hear the mountain peaks belong to him. The mountains are his. We sang it in the kids' song. 
The T people are not beyond his reach. Let's come to point three, your identity and purpose. We need the context of the Romans 1 passage to understand the meaning. Not only is this a world enslaved to global death by Satan's lie, this passage in the context of the hated Romans, the Roman Empire to whom Israel paid heavy taxes. And Jesus says, you don't belong to either Satan or Caesar, the Roman Emperor. You belong to God. And in the new covenant, we don't obey the old covenant law, but we have the new covenant and the law written on our hearts. You are his holy people. I started with the question, what is the purpose of your life? The answer depends on what you belong to. If you belong to Christ, to God, then what bothers him bothers you. The tragedy of defiance in the world against God bothers you. What he's hungry for is what you're hungry for, if you belong to God. So in verse 6 and 7 of Romans 1, And you also are amongst those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses would shock and stagger us if we would see their significance. The Romans, what? Weren't they the enemy, oppressors of God's people Israel, who had taken over Israel's kingdom? Aren't they Gentiles, non-Jewish people, unholy, such that if they stepped into the temple grounds, this would be desecration and defiling the temple? You can read about such outrage in Acts 21. And with the penalty that they would be killed? How can the Romans, outsiders and Gentiles, be in God's people and called beloved? So the gospel really is big news, everyone. The doors of the kingdom are thrown open by Christ in a really at that point, unexpected way. The gospel is not that people can be forgiven their sins and cleansed and made to be the kingdom people of God because the Jews already had that in the old covenant. The new covenant, the gospel news, is that Jesus is the Christ for people all throughout the world. This is the gospel of the Christ. And Paul tells them, you too. All the Gentiles really means all the Gentiles. The Australians, you too. The tea people, you too belong to this Christ. The only reason that there's a letter to the Romans in the Bible is because this gospel is true. The only reason we are all gathered today is because the gospel is in fact about all nations. Without that being true, we would not have the gospel. Without mission, there would be no gospel for us. And if it's true that we can be saved, then it's true for the rest of us Gentiles too. And that's why we as God's church are propelled to reach frontier unreached people groups. Because there are people who belong to the king out there. And we ourselves would be just as lost as the frontier peoples of the world without the gospel, without Christ. This kingdom is the very purpose which God created the world and is saving the world. From what we see here in the Bible, is there any separation between the gospel and mission? If any presentation of the gospel is divorced from mission, 
or treats mission as an optional extra, wouldn't we have to say that it has missed the whole picture of the gospel? You can see the Bible is one big story filled with the tragedy of the fall of humankind into sin and the triumph of God's rescue mission in sending his son to snatch his bride from the clutches of disobedience and death to live ever after in a glorious global kingdom with all nations of humankind represented. And we have the news and words to reach all tribes, the gospel must cross languages. There is work to do to translate God's love letter. You see that word in verse 7, loved, beloved, from lost to loved, from searching in vain for identity and purpose in all the wrong places, searching for satisfaction but still left thirsty, and found by Jesus who calls us by name, took us by the hand, his hands reaching for us. He knows us, loved us, he tells us he created us. He knows and he felt our pain. I came for you, my beloved. He gave his life for his bride, the worldwide church, to give her salvation into a new life. The grandest romance, a ring put on your finger, opening your eyes, changing your life, given a new identity and purpose, called by his name. How could we live without him? We cry out, Jesus, I belong to you, heart, body and soul. Verses 6 and 7 say that the beloved of God belong to him, that they are called as holy or saints who are sacred, consecrated to belong to God. And later in Romans chapter 15, verse 16, Paul speaks of the Gentile peoples as the consecrated offering to God. Consecration may be unfamiliar to us, but it is, a picture, it is pictured clearly in the Bible. The firstborn sons in Israel were consecrated to God in Exodus 13, brought out of slavery to Egypt. They would have been slaves apart from the grace and redemption of God. And except for the salvation of God, God says, you would belong to the one who kept you as a slave, apart from the redemption by a lamb. I won't read all of this, but from Exodus 13. You must present to the Lord the firstborn male of every womb, and, the, and all the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. You must redeem every firstborn donkey with a lamb, and if you do not redeem it, you are to break its neck. And every firstborn of your sons you must redeem. Kind of like, without the lamb, you, your life would be forfeit. And God says, remember that I paid for you. Realise that you belong to me. So take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Give up your best to the master. We don't live for ourselves if we are his. Paul says elsewhere, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And bondservant to Jesus is the way Paul describes himself in Romans 1 verse 1. So called to be holy or consecrated, set apart to his purpose, away from idols, away from just following the world in chasing the Australian dream. Not all of us have to do the same work. God gives different opportunities to different people. But all of us are saved to be about Christ's mission, no matter how we get behind it. 
Some are called to be apostles, that is, messengers, as Paul says he is in verse 1. But all God's people are consecrated. All of us, not just Paul. God's people are joined into his cause, his mission, to see the obedience, love and worship of all nations, called to live for his international kingdom. Whether or not you are a messenger going to the frontier, unreached with the gospel, you are called to devote yourself in sending the gospel for Christ to be worshipped by all people groups. This is his holy purpose. There is a call on your life, not just those who are sent. The same word called is used of God's consecrated people in verse 6 and 7 as of the Apostle Paul in verse 1. And this is not a mere mortal call, but a divine call from the sovereign Lord of the universe. Is our loyalty to the frontier people? And are they worthy? Actually, it is to Christ, because he is worthy. And Christ has come so that you will live life with and for him. If the Bible is true, people such as the T people are his beloved too. And God has set his value on them. They're not deserving and yet loved by God in his grace of inestimable value based on his worth. Lost, but Jesus gave his life for them. They have been made and paid for by Christ who deserves a multinational kingdom. And Christ's mission is our mission. In whatever way we can be involved, we are to be faithful to what he has given us to do. Lest we forget we were just like those beyond the frontier. Our redeemed purpose is to be Christ's beloved, consecrated to his purpose. There's one gospel vision of Christ's kingdom over the entire created earth under Jesus as king. And the whole earth matters, not just half of it. I'll give you a picture. Is it okay if a husband has sexual sin or pornography in only half of the rooms of the house? Surely we wouldn't say so. Yet there are 42.5% of the world's people groups that are unreached and trapped without the gospel in sin. And amongst these, there are the frontier people, such as the tea people. Why go to the frontier people, like the tea people, laying down the security of a career as a specialist in acute hospital medicine, contact with our families, language, safety of our kids with child abduction or kidnapping being realities there? But God did not withhold his own son what could make it worth it to be unfaithful to God's mission? Will you devote yourself as a church to Christ's purpose to send the gospel to them by sending and praying for us regularly? Can we now turn a blind eye to God's gospel, global in scope? Or what part of the world should we hold back from God? Is this a mission impossible? Are these mountains too big to overcome? I'll finish shortly, but I just wanted to mention that the David covenant that we said, we mentioned before, caps a series of covenant pictures, all of with seemingly impossible mountains. Noah, saved as his sole family, with the whole earth destroyed and coming to rest on a mountain. Abraham, offering his Isaac on a mountain and provided the sacrifice of a lamb. Moses on Mount Sinai giving the, the law that made Israel into a nation. 
David's kingdom and temple centered on a mountain. And Jesus' mountain showdowns with Satan, the temptations of Jesus, and the mountains of Gethsemane and Calvary. That's not a hill to die on. Christ says it is. And every mountain is conquered by God because the mountains are his. That's the heading of our prayer card that you can put on your fridge to keep this on your heart and pray it into reality. Uh, let me invite you to get a prayer card from me at the close of this worship service and sign up to our prayer newsletter. It's an incredible unprecedented opportunity that we are given rather than grudging obligation because we should have been outside of the frontier ourselves but now we are part of the mission of God. So let's open our hearts to the King today. Let's listen to his voice and decide today to follow him because he is worthy and all the earth is his. The mountains are his. Let's pray. Our God, our creator and rescuer, who gave us the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the loving obedience and joyful worship of all the nations throughout the world you made. Please grip us with a big picture of the gospel, salvation for a kingdom of all nations, and show us how we can use all of our life and breath and talents and energies to live for this kingdom and to complete the gospel mission of which our salvation is a part. For Christ's name and by the power of Christ, Lord of the nations, amen.